You will find our Bible reading this morning in the Gospel according to Matthew. From Matthew 21, we're going to begin to read from verse 28. The Lord Jesus is teaching in the temple and the religious leaders are listening to what he is saying. Verse 28 to the end of the chapter. These are the words of our Lord Jesus. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall round it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd, because the people held that he was a prophet. 
This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. One of my um, all-time favourite films um, is The Mission. I don't know whether you've seen that. It's a little bit old now. It goes back a few years. Uh, set in South America in the 18th century. Starring Robert De Niro as a, a Spanish a slave trader. And um, Jeremy Irons as the Jesuit missionary, uh, Father, Father Gabriel, reaching out to the, uh, the Guarani tribe. Uh, the scenery is fantastic, the, uh, uh, the music's enjoyable, but the film also covers some great themes, including that of repentance. Uh, Captain Mendoza, the, uh, the slave trader, has a, a fallout with his brother over, uh, over a woman and ends up killing him. And he's filled with a sense of uh, just guilt and remorse, and he feels he just has to do something about it. He has to do almost penance for it. Um, so he puts all his weapons and his armor into this big net as a symbol of his uh, old way of life. He carries it on his back, as you see in this picture, and he drags it up the, a cliff face to the top. He keeps falling down a few times, but carries on going. The sad thing about the episode is that he realizes what he's done is wrong. Uh, he wants to change, but he doesn't know how to deal with his past guilt. He feels he has to atone for it himself. And the moving moment is when uh, the Guarani, many of whom he has enslaved and killed, uh, cut that weight off from him and allow it to fall back down, uh, freeing him and thereby signifying their forgiveness of what he's done. The wonderful news about the gospel is that Jesus is willing to atone for all our sins. We will all, at some stage, have done things that we regret. We will all have made bad choices. Um, But whereas in some cases we have to live with the consequences of those bad choices, we don't have to live with the guilt. The past is dealt with by Jesus. As we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, Jesus came to Jerusalem. He came as a king in gentleness and humility, with invitation to come to him, all those who are weak and heavy laden, and he will give them rest. He is entered Jerusalem to die on a cross, so that our guilt can be taken away. And therefore, whatever we've done in the past doesn't matter. What matters is where we are now in relation to God. That's why LCBC doesn't just stand for a long Crenham Baptist Church, but lives changed by Christ. If we've changed our ways, if we've turned from leading our lives our way, thinking we know it all, and turned to follow Jesus as our Saviour and our King, then we don't need to carry around that weight of guilt. He's taken that from us. And as a passage this morning, hopefully it will be a great encouragement to us. If we believe that Jesus really did die for us, that he was raised to life, he conquered death, then for us he will be the solid cornerstone in whom we can have great confidence, knowing that we are in safe hands. If we haven't put our trust in him, then he will be a stumbling block. He will cause us to fall. So as we study our passage now, ask yourself the question as we go through it, where are you at with Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Well, last week um, we looked at three little incidents um, 
in chapter 21, which pointed to the fact that following Jesus as king requires the worship of our hearts, our faith in Jesus' power, and our submission to his authority. In short, our love, our faith, and our obedience. And in the last incident, uh, where we left it, um, verse 27, uh, Jesus asked the religious leaders a question about John the Baptist, which they were unable to answer without compromising themselves. Um, And he now moves into telling them a parable, in which he makes it quite clear that God calls everyone to repent. Have a look at verse 28. He says, what do you think? He's saying this to the religious leaders, and he goes on to tell a story about a man with two sons. Um, It's a great way, isn't it, of uh, beginning his parable. He knows that they're actually out to seek his death, but he's still trying to get them to use their minds to think. Christianity is not irrational. Now, the problem is people often don't give Jesus enough thought. They're too busy with their lives to stop and just consider his claims. As Paul wrote to Timothy in his letter, he wrote, Think over what I say, and the Lord will give understanding. Following Jesus starts with the mind, as we ask whether what he says is true. But then it needs to go to the heart to lead to a change in behaviour, as we will see. Well, what is this power about? Jesus uh, tells how the father goes to his first son, and he says, son, go and work in the the vineyard today, in the vineyard. I will not, comes the response, which seems a bit lacking in respect, uh, if not rebellious. But, and here comes the important bit, later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. Very respectful, but always trying too hard to make an immediate impression. And again, we have this little word, but he did not go. Now, I'm sure we've all been there um, in those, both those situations at some point, haven't we? We've said we would go and do something, and for whatever reason, we failed to do it. Or we said we, we wouldn't, but then realised, actually, we probably ought to, and ended up doing it. Jesus asks the leaders, which of the two did what his father wanted. Now, it's not difficult to reply. Uh, the first, they say. It's not to say the first was perfect. Uh, it was pretty disobedient to start with. But the important thing is that he ended up in the right place. He accepted that he was wrong to disobey his father, and he did something about it. How does Jesus apply the teaching? Well, he's quite direct, isn't he? He doesn't mince his words. He says to the um, religious leaders he says truly I tell you the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you for John came to show you the the way of righteousness and you did not believe him but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did and even after you saw this you did not repent and believe now, he's not just singling out these two groups of, uh, of sinners, but using them as an example. No one doubted that the tax collectors uh, and prostitutes were sinners. The tax collectors collaborated with the Romans uh, to do their work of collecting taxes from the, the people. They were generally pretty corrupt, took money for themselves, as we learn from the story of Zacchaeus. The prostitutes were considered sinners because of their sexual immorality. 
Both were ignoring God's way of living. But the point Jesus is making here is that however fast someone may have fallen morally, they're never beyond redemption. It's never the end. These people heard John preaching. Um, they were prepared to listen. Uh, they were prepared to think about it and then change their minds and follow that with their actions. When Jesus talks about his son who changed his mind, uh, that expression, change his mind, actually means repent. Uh, the Greek word is metanoia, meta being changed and noia being mind. Uh, to repent is not just about the mind, it starts in the mind, um, but it then involves acting on that decision. The son, we're told, changed his mind and he went. He went and did what he should have done beforehand. The reason the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is because they changed their minds. They gave up their previous way of life. In the story of the tax collector Zacchaeus, uh, uh, whose house Jesus goes to, he says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Changing one's mind can be a simple thing when it's just something that doesn't really matter. But when it's an ingrained behavior that we've been living life for years, when, when your pride stops you from admitting that you're wrong, when stubbornness stops you from listening to, to those around you and you keep plodding on regardless, then that's much harder, isn't it? Sometimes there's a, a thin line between perseverance and stubbornness. I'm sure you'll, you'll have your different views on um, what that is for Theresa May at the moment. We read about them in the paper, don't we? For the religious leaders, it was clearly stubbornness and pride. And even now Jesus is saying to them, you have an opportunity to repent. Do it before it's too late. You're clinging on to your, your man-made rules and traditions. You're, you're clinging on to your own sense of self-importance. You're clinging to self-righteousness. For those here this morning who, who are wrestling with this issue, haven't yet got to that point of repenting, can I urge you to, to turn from your, your previous way of life, living your life your way, and turn towards Jesus, follow him, as the one who can grant you salvation, who can grant you a relationship with God himself and can bring peace to your life. If you have repented, but there are just still areas of your life which Satan has a stronghold over, what are you uh, doing about that? Are you persisting in your sin? Trying to somehow justify it to yourself? Or are you seeking God's strength to turn from it? Or if you have repented, are you following God, but you still feel that weight of guilt from the past? You know you've made some mistakes, but you're just not quite sure how to, to put them right. That bag of armour is still a burden around your neck. Well, that's where the other part of following Jesus comes in, because Jesus calls people to repent. He also calls people to believe. He says to the religious leaders, for John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did and even after you saw this you did not repent and believe 
Where does this believing come in? What are they meant to believe in? Well, that comes out much more, in the, more clearly in the second parable. Because God calls everyone to repent. He also calls them to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. Or if the religious leaders don't feel got at enough yet, they soon will after this parable. Listen to another parable, Jesus says in verse 33. And he goes on to describe a landowner who planted a vineyard. What did he do having planted the vineyard? We were told then, uh, verse uh, 33, he put a wall around it, he dug a wine press in it, he built a watchtower, and then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and uh, moved to another place. What a great position to be in if you were a tenant. The farmers had to do nothing. They're given this wonderful vineyard to look after with all the equipment to do the job, um, all the protection that it needed. And the owner was prepared just to move away, remain at a distance, and trust them to look after it without meddling. At harvest time, he sends uh, servants to collect his share of the fruit, which he is entitled to. But even though they know that nothing they have belongs to them, that they are merely tenants, that they owe some of that fruit to the landowner, they have the nerve to seize the per servants to beat one, to kill another, and to stone a third. So the owner sends uh, some more servants, and the same thing happens. And last of all, verse 37, he sent his son to them, thinking, they will respect my son. But instead they see that it's an opportunity to, to take the inheritance, and so they throw him out of the vineyard and have him killed. And Jesus asks them, what do you think the owner will do to the tenants when he comes? And they answer, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. He will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. What they fail to see is that they are the tenants and they are convicting themselves. The image of the vineyard was a commonly used image um, in, in the Old Testament to describe the nation of Israel. The landowner who planted the vineyard, therefore, would have been God. Uh, God has entrusted the people of Israel to the care of the religious leaders. Uh, from time to time, he sent prophets to, to them with a message, but they've ignored them. They've treated them badly, they've carried on doing what they were doing. They were ruling harshly, over the people, they were placing heavy burdens on them in terms of religious duties and traditions for them to, to fulfill. And so finally, God sends his son. This is my beloved son, he says, listen to him when he's baptised. But they don't. They throw him out of the vineyard. Um, in other words, they throw him to the Romans um, and he's killed. And at this stage, the religious leaders haven't quite clicked what Jesus is getting at. And so he explains to them in verse 42. Have you never read in the scriptures, of course they would have done, but they haven't made the link yet, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. 
This is a quotation from Psalm 118. And to fully understand it and what it's got to do with this story, um, it would be helpful to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Because this is Peter um, and John being brought before the religious leaders for having healed a lame man. And if you look at verse um, verse 8 there, the end of verse 8, this is what Peter says. He says, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. So he's making it pretty clear that Jesus is the stone, and they are the builders who rejected him. And they rejected him by crucifying him. Now for a builder to to reject a stone that is fit to be the cornerstone of a building, the most important stone in the whole building, the one that holds everything together, um, is just great incompetence. Uh, And in the same way it was a a huge crime, even more than incompetence, for the religious leaders to reject the Messiah. After all, they were the best qualified. They they knew the Old Testament teaching about him. Uh, They'd witnessed him before miracles. Uh, They had listened to him teach. They'd even been invited by him to repent and believe. It's a sobering lesson, isn't it, for us today that it's not always the most obvious people who accept Jesus. It's not always those who have um, had a Christian upbringing who've come along regularly to church. It's sad to say it's not always those who have studied theology. There will be church leaders in this country who are still rejecting the stone. Well, the rejection of the stone by the religious leaders meant the death of Jesus as they crucified him. But the good news, Peter said, is that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so the stone becoming the cornerstone is referring to the resurrection. Just as the stone is lifted up to become the cornerstone, so is the body of Jesus. There is a complete reversal of the rejected one. God raises his son to life and he seats him on the throne of heaven. And Peter finishes his sermon by telling us what that death and what that resurrection accomplish. He says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. What the religious leaders don't realise was that Jesus' death was part of God's plan. He knew that that is what they would do, and he was willing to be rejected, because by dying, by taking the punishment we deserve for our sins, Jesus sets us free. As we looked at in the previous parable, we need to repent of our sinfulness, but we also need to believe that Jesus' death and resurrection was sufficient to deal with our sin. And as we do so, we no longer need to live with that guilt hanging over us. But what if we don't do that? We're going back to the passage in in Matthew 21. Jesus makes it clear to the religious leaders that the parable is about them. 
And therefore, he says in verse 43, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Last week, we saw how Jesus made a, a fig tree wither to symbolize how the religious leaders had failed to produce fruit in the people, the people for whom they were responsible. They failed to, to produce people who loved God, who trusted God, who obeyed God. Instead, they weighed them down with a whole load of legalistic burdens. And so Jesus says he will take away this responsibility from them. Anyone, he says, who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Those are sobering words, aren't they? The religious leaders failed to admit that their hearts were far from God. They were too busy trying to impress others, too busy trying to hold on to to their power. And they thought that by having Jesus killed would be the end of it. They could just carry on as before. But it would never be the same because Jesus came back to life. Even then, they would still be able to admit their sin, to repent and believe, but still many chose not to and ended up being crushed. Well, as we finish, let's go back to that quote from Psalm 118 that Jesus quoted in verse 42. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Why is it marvellous? Well, it's marvellous because it's achieved our salvation. It's marvellous because it's given God the glory. That word translated cornerstone literally means head of the corner. Jesus has now become the head as we finish with this passage from Ephesians. Um, God the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. God placed all creation under the rule and authority of Jesus. He made him head over everything for us, his people, the church. What a great privilege it is to have as our cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself. And so the question remains as we finish, is he your cornerstone? Have you repented? Have you put your trust in him? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these wonderful words of Jesus, his great teaching. The fact that we all have an opportunity to repent of living our life our our way and turn and follow Jesus and allow him to lead us into the way of everlasting the way of righteousness, the way in which we can enjoy an eternal relationship with you. Lord, thank you that as he died on the cross, as he took our sins, and as he was raised to life, that all our past sins, all our guilt has been dealt with. It's been left there at the cross. And so, Lord, if we're still feeling that sense of guilt, take it away from us. 
reassure us that it has been dealt with, that it has been forgiven. And Lord, if we're not yet there, Lord, help us to see just the glory of the cross. Help us to see how marvellous it is what you have done for us and how each one of us is invited to enjoy that for themselves. In Jesus' name, amen.